Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word. It's so incredible. It's so enlightening, Lord. It cleanses us. It um, helps us. Lord, I pray that we could hide it in our hearts, that we'd sin not against you. And um, Lord, we do pray for our country. Pray for those in Florida who this week lost their children, their brothers, their sisters, their friends. And I um, pray that you just show yourself merciful, Lord, that you would just um, manifest your grace there in great and amazing ways, Lord. And um, you bring comfort to hearts. I do pray that you'd bring so many people to repentance, Lord. And um, just thinking about what happened this week and uh, thinking we never know who we're running into. We don't know who we're praying for, who we're giving the gospel to. If it's somebody who's going to commit some kind of heinous crime like that. Um, pray that your gospel would save, Lord. We praise you. We love you. We ask that you'd be here with us today. Guide our minds, our hearts. Let us conform to your word, Lord. In your name. Amen. All right. So Psalm 33. Let's just go ahead and read through it. So I'm on page 465, if that helps anybody. Just kidding. All right, it says, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because... We have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. So first off, if you read the last two verses of Psalm 32, which was that great psalm about confession, right? About having our sins forgiven. Remember how it started off? Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then it ends much in a similar way that Psalm 33 begins. So 
a lot of scholars think that because there's no inscription of who this psalm is by or anything like that in 33, that it's actually kind of an extension of Psalm 32. And so if you read the end of Psalm 32, verses 10 through 11, it says, Mary, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so that's much how this Psalm 33 begins. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. Right? Praise the Lord with the heart. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. So you see how it, they, they're very similar in, in the words that are used and everything there. But I think it's just awesome because if, if Psalm 32 is a psalm of repentance, of confession to the Lord, and then receiving that forgiveness, Psalm 33 is the praise of the righteous. And who are those who are righteous? Those who are on time to church. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, those who are righteous are those who have been forgiven for being on time to church. <laughs> for not being on time, no. Those who have been forgiven of their sins, who have, for, who have confessed their sins to the Lord and then received his forgiveness, right? Once we confess our sins to the Lord in the truth and in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are clothed with his righteousness. And so I think it's just awesome that Psalm 33 comes after Psalm 32 because this is the praise of the righteous in Psalm 33. Those who have been forgiven of all their sins, of all their iniquities, of all their transgressions, right? So it's awesome. So it says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. So again, to be righteous means that there has been an external force thrust upon you to make you so. Right? We're not righteous of ourselves. Our righteousness is imputed to us from Christ. Right? We put our faith in him. He has done the work. He woos, him, woos us to himself. He brings us to himself, brings us to confession. And what happens? We confess we're forgiven. We're, we're forgiven. We believe on the person and work of Christ. And that right, righteousness is imputed to us. Okay? And so, how glorious and worthy of praise is that truth? I mean, this is, this is a psalm of worship, guys. Let your hearts go with this. Okay? So, God saves us, and what do we do? We rejoice in Him. We praise Him. If we were to be able to, if we had righteousness in and of ourselves, we wouldn't rejoice in the Lord, we would rejoice in ourselves. Right? We would rejoice in ourselves. But our righteousness is from him, so we don't. We rejoice in him. So look at it again, the, the second part of that. For praise from the upright is beautiful, or um, other translations would have it, and it seems just from my studies that this was actually more accurate this way. Praise is beautiful for the upright, or praise is the beauty of the upright. It's what the upright, the righteous, adorn themselves with. It's, it's our beauty. It's like, it's like what we put on. Our praise to the Lord is like what we put on. You know, remember um, uh, Proverbs chapter 1, and, and King Solomon's instructing his son. He says, you know, if you, 
If you heed your mo- the wisdom of your father, the counsel of your mother, it will be like an ornament around your neck. All right, it will be beauty. It will adorn you. Or in, um, is it 1 Peter chapter 3? Talking about wives to be submissive to your husbands, which every woman's like, no. You know, which is not, doesn't mean that, right? It means that the husband is loving his wife, and she comes under that, that headship of her husband. Right? But as he lifts her up, she comes down underneath his, his loving care, underneath his, um, his headship that's under Christ, because Christ is over him, it says in Ephesians. But it says that the women of old adorned themselves with a quiet and gentle spirit. They adorned themselves with that. And as believers in Jesus Christ, what do we adorn ourselves with? One of the things is praise. It's praise. We should adorn ourselves with praise. It's like the clothes we put on in the morning. Verse 2, it says, Praise the Lord with the heart. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings, or literally sing to him with an instrument of ten strings. And I like that much better. The more literal rendition of that is just sing to him with an instrument of ten strings. When, when Kristen comes here and plays her harp, the first morning that she was doing it, we were just kind of standing around, around, and we were just enraptured by it. That harp was singing to the Lord, and it was singing to us. You know, we could, we could hear the words in it, and everything it was beautiful. And um, unfortunately, we missed the harp this month. Maybe we'll get it again next month. Okay? Everybody hold her to it. <laughs> um, but we sing to him with an instrument of ten strings, at least Kristen does, but how many strings does yours have? 44. That's a lot of strings. Um, the, the, the harp that David would play is more like a lyre, and I had a, a slide of it, but the projector's not quite bright enough to put it on with the lights on and everything, but it was actually the picture of, um, of the statue of David in Jerusalem in the, around the temple complex. It was actually near... Um, um, let's see, Caiaphas's house and everything. I remember going past it when we were there, and I believe it was bronze or something like that, but it has a picture of him playing this harp, and so it would be like kind of come up, you know, with a straight bar, and then one over, and then nothing on this side, but the strings would just go to it. And there are different types of lyres and everything like that, and most of them look like a U with strings in the middle, but I believe the most ancient ones that we have found, which would have been from his time, a little bit different than that. But unfortunately, the projector is not working real well. So otherwise, you'd see that. Um, but then it says, in verse, um, three, it says, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. So sing to him a new song. That's awesome. What does that mean? Or we should just always come up with new songs all the time? Or we should put away the old hymns, put away the older songs, stuff like I mean, we probably have to put away some of the psalms. It was always supposed to be a new song. But maybe sing it in a new way. When we see God's work in our life or we see him do something, we can sing to him a new song. Sometimes old songs that we know from the past just come alive with a new beauty to us. And we're able to sing them to them with, with a new fervency, with a new joy. You know? Or think about the moment you were saved. 
Wasn't there a new song in your heart? When you became righteous, when God, when you realized that Jesus Christ loved you so much, when God loved you so much that he gave his only son so that you could be saved, did that give you a new song in your heart? Didn't the old songs of your heart, like what was the old song of my heart? Um, it was a Beastie Boys song. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, what was that one we used to wake up to every morning? Oh, it's Fight for Your Right to Party. That was my old song. But my new song was Praise to the Lord. It was Praise to the Lord, right? And that's the experience of a, of a Christian, of a convert, of someone who is born again to have a new song in their heart. So it's so cool. And to think of who the Lord is, that he's over all creation, that he's the God and the Lord of our past, our present, our future. He's the God, Lord of the past from the beginning of creation all the way into the consummation of all things. He is Lord and he's sovereign over all. That should give us a new song. So now... We've seen that we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. We're supposed to praise the Lord. We're supposed to sing to the Lord. We're supposed to, I forgot this part, we're supposed to play skillfully with a shout of joy. I do like the old King James better. It says, play with a loud noise. That's what I do most of the time, just a loud noise. But actually, it means a very clear, a very um, uh, uh, joyful shout, right? But clear, skillful. And so that's why we like when, when Kristen or, or somebody plays their harp, when they get up, and you guys sounded great this morning, I thought. Yeah. Okay, well, that's fine. You know? But you could tell there was practice, right? They didn't just come up here and just throw it into the wind. They, they applied their skill to it. And that's how we should worship the Lord. So... Now, the rest of this psalm is going to show why we should worship the Lord. What are the reasons that we should worship the Lord? All right? We've already identified one. We're righteous. We're righteous, and it's not of ourselves. It's because of Christ. So the first reason to worship, worship the Lord, or when you see the Lord in this in the psalm, it's usually it should be in all caps in your Bible, L, capital L, capital O-R-D. That means it's the... Name of God, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. Those four letters, we're not real sure how to pronounce. Yodhe Vadhe. That was just to impress you guys. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> I probably didn't say it right anyways. But um, the first reason is for his word and his works. Okay, so verse 4, it says, For the word of the Lord is right. For the word of the Lord is right. We should have t-shirts that just say that. That verse, Psalm 33, 4, the word of the Lord is right. You know? I mean, just think about it from, there's so many books out there that claim to have divine origin or claim to be truth, but we have what's right, what's truly right, what's correct. We have the word of Yahweh, the word of the God of, who created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. His word never falls to the ground. It always accomplishes that for which he sends it, right? And it says, and all his work is done in truth. All that he does, 
is in accord with his word. He never goes outside of his, his word. He never goes outside of his attributes of who he is. It's all done in truth because he is truth. What did Jesus say? I'm the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. Right? He is the truth. Verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So he loves righteousness and justice. And the whole earth is full of the goodness. Goodness is um, that word that means loving kindness, his, his, um, his covenant love for his people has said. And we've gone over that. You guys should start to, to remember that word now. The whole earth is full of his has said, his mercy, his loving kindness, his covenant love. Just think, with every breath, with the rising of the sun, the moon, well, as the earth turns, right? Seed time and harvest, we see the covenant love of God. And where do we see the sign of that covenant? The rainbow, right? Or the war bow. So let's go back to Genesis 8, chapter 20, or chapter 8, verse 20 of Genesis. Because when did God dispense his righteousness and his justice and show his goodness on the entire earth at the flood? Remember, man had become exceedingly corrupt, and violence was over the entire earth, all right, in chapter 6. And so God sends a flood to destroy all living things that are on the earth, but he saves one family. He saves Noah and his family and all the animals that are gathered onto the ark with him. And so it says this in chapter 8, verse 20 of Genesis. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is after they come out of the ark, Okay after it sets up on the mountain. So Noah built an altar to the Lord and took up every clean animal of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remained seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Okay, so that's the promise that God has made. All right? And what's the sign of the covenant? Look at verse 12 in chapter 9. So it says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud. And rainbow, it's, it's a war bow. It's like a bow and arrow, but there's no arrow in it. It's pointed away from the earth. Okay? Saying that I will never again strike the earth with a flood. So I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember. 
the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So it says, his love, he loves righteousness and justice. Man's sin, he loves righteousness and justice. He can't, he can't ignore his own attribute, right? He must dispense his justice on the earth. But then he makes a covenant because he is love, right? He makes a covenant, and the sign of that covenant is the rainbow, and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord, of the mercy of the Lord, of the covenant love of the Lord, right? I mean, everywhere on the face of the earth, you see a rainbow at some point, maybe even a double rainbow, if anybody remembers that. Unfortunately, my brain has been destroyed by that video, but... But his, um, his goodness has gone out over the entire earth. Right? And, and how about now? Is his goodness still, his covenant still not spreading over the entire earth? Through the gospel, through the everlasting gospel that we get to preach? That our brothers and sisters all over the earth are dispensing to people? Whether people accept it or not, it is the goodness of the Lord to them. Right? So we worship Yahweh because his word is true. It is right. He, is, he loves righteousness. He loves justice. And the goodness of the Lord is over the face of all the earth. So that's one reason to worship him. The second reason to worship Yahweh, for he creates all things by his word. Look at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Think of that. How great is our God, who didn't create things out of what was a pre-existing. He took nothing, right? He made it all from the power of his word. Listen to Psalm 148, 1 through 5. It says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts, praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you stars of light, praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. He commanded, and they were created. Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. They were made from things that are visible. They were made by his word. 2 Peter 3, 5, For this they willfully forget by, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. They were created of old. And the earth standing out of water and in the water. And through whom were all things created? We all know this answer. Through Christ. Right? Through Jesus. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And who's that word? Verse 14 in John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he makes everything just by the power of his word. Verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses I believe this is referring to Genesis 1-9. So he's gone over how he's created 
the stars, right? Um, so in verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. All the hosts, probably the hosts of stars, planets, galaxies. I mean, that we can't number, God can. I mean, billions and billions or trillions of galaxies. He created them all. And then on the earth, what did he do? He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep and storehouses and in Genesis 1-9, it says, God, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Speaking of the creation of the earth. And he lays the deep in the storehouses, perhaps a reference to, you know, subterranean oceans, or whatever it is. And also in the clouds, those storehouses in the clouds. I mean, water is suspended above us in the air. And then it rains. And then it cycles back through, becomes a cloud again. What power, what magnificence, what wisdom? Does that bring you to worship that truth? Does it bring you to a place of worship where you praise the Lord, where you rejoice in him for what he's done? And then verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So kind of reiterating what he had already said. But he spoke, and it was done. And it was done is the same Hebrew words as, and it was so in Genesis 1. Right? So he said, let there be light, and it was so. And it goes over and over again. He says it six times. And it was so. And here, it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Right? He made the foundations of all things. Third reason to worship Yahweh, his counsel prevails, verses 10 through 12. It says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. So first off, we can praise Yahweh, we can praise God. Because he's sovereign. Sovereign even over the plans of men. Look at what it says again. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. To nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. So just think. I mean, the evil plans that people come up with. All their strategizing. You know, thinking that yeah, this will work. Or, or perhaps trying to attack and destroy Israel. Especially at this time in Israel's history. It wasn't going to succeed, right? As Israel is their covenant nation, and they're walking in the covenant. And the moment they step outside of that covenant, they start worshiping other gods. What does God do? He chastises them. He lets the enemies win. But that was because of Israel's planning. They're scheming against the Most High God, right? But as even as the other nations. I mean, how many nations have wanted to destroy Israel? Iran, you know, I mean, most of the Middle East there. So many nations want to destroy Israel. And it hasn't come to pass. This little itty-bitty speck on the map is still standing. It's still there. There's God's faithfulness, right? It shows that his counsel stands, but the plans and the counsels of men will fall. They won't come to pass. 
It says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. There is nothing that can change his purposes. No person, no power in the heavens, no angel, no demons, nothing that can change his plans. That's a great reason to praise God. He's unstoppable. Right? He's unstoppable. He decides and it happens. Then it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. That's verse 12. And who's that that it's speaking of there? Most likely it's speaking of Israel. I'm sure it's speaking of Israel. Right? That's who the psalmist is referring to. And I believe he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 32. And we've been over it briefly once. But I want you to go there. Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 7. And try to follow along. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. It was just more accurate in this. Chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. So it's the fifth book in your Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Chapter 32, verse 7. I still hear pages turning, so I'm going to wait just a minute. Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. It says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind. Now, pause for a minute. When did he divide mankind? Tower of Babel, right? Remember, they all gathered together. He, so, he, told, him, he told, told man to spread among the earth, be fruitful and multiply. And what do they do? They congregate to one area and they say, let's build a tower for ourselves. You know? Whose top reaches to the heavens. It's an assault to God. And God looks down on their tiny little tower. Right? <laughs> That's what it says. He looks down on it. It says, Man does this, then nothing they do will be withheld from him. So he sets a boundary for him. He divides them up. He divides up their languages. They can't dwell together anymore. He divides them up. The Tower of Babel. And then it says, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, in your translation, it's going to say, according to the number of the children of Israel. But did, were the, did Israel even exist at the Tower of Babel? No. No. Israel doesn't start until years and years and years later. Right? He calls Abraham from the land of the Chaldeans. And um, then it's his son, Jacob, you know, who has the 12 tribes of Israel. And, that, and Israel is called out of Egypt after being there for 400 years. That's when they become a nation. But at the Tower of Babel, they weren't even a dot on the map yet. Especially not the children of Israel, the children of Jacob. And so most of the manuscripts that we have, 
say either angels or sons of God. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you look in your margin, it should say the Dead Sea Scrolls say sons of God. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says angels of God or something like that. So what, what happened here? God divides up the world, the peoples, by their nations, and does what? Points these gods over them. These Elohim, what they're called. Okay? They're not like the most high God. They're created angels. They're angels. They're created beings that God dispenses their authority over the earth. But what happens? They're wicked. They're evil. We are a wicked people, so God put wicked rulers over us. Except for one nation. Except for Israel. Keep on reading. So it says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling wastes of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. So out of all the nations of the world who have these wicked gods over them, these wicked angels, right? God calls one nation to be his own. One nation, and it's Israel. He calls Abraham out. He says, you're going to be mine. Your descendants are going to be mine. They're going to worship me. And I'm going to show my loving kindness to them. Okay? Actually, go ahead and look at Here, I'll just read to you Genesis 12. This is the call of Abraham. Now the Lord God said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families, all the other families of the earth shall be blessed. In what way? Because the Messiah is going to come out of Abraham's lineage. So, yes, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. So God's put, but here's the thing, God's put Israel aside for a time, right? It's not till later during the tribulation period that kind of picks them back up. The times of the Gentiles will be over. Jacob's trouble, which is that seven-year tribulation period, will eventually be over. And God will show that his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, his covenant to David, that he will never cease to have a man on the throne. And it will all come to pass. But until then, what is God doing? He's pulling people out of every nation. So just think of that. These gods who are over these nations are being plundered. They're being plundered, right? What did Jesus say? Mark 3, 22 through 30. Go ahead and go there. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, so, I'm sorry, Mark three twenty-two, And the scribes who came from down from Jerusalem, said, He has Beelzebub, and by the rulers of demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, can that, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he had an unclean spirit. So they were saying he casts out Beelzebub by the, or Satan by the prince of the demons, right? But look what he says. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. So what is Jesus doing? By his death, he canceled out the requirement, right? The writing, the, the law, so that we could come and that we could experience grace by calling on his name. So we're not saved by keeping the law, right? By keeping his ordinances, we're saved by Jesus Christ, by placing our faith in him. And so we come, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, what happens? When he died, he tied up the strong man. And now he's plundering his house. He's taking men and women from every nation under heaven. When we look in the book of Revelation, what does it say? And I saw a multitude in heaven, right? Tribes of every nation under heaven standing before the throne of God. He's plundering the nations. And so, um, blessed, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as, as his own inheritance. So that was Israel, but now it's also us. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, it says in 1 Peter. Right? A people for God's own possession. And I want, you to, I want to read one more passage to you on that thought. Okay, you could read Ephesians, and you, I, I believe you see this clearly, but in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Do you see what our God has done? We belonged to the prince of the power of the air, but he's plundered him. He's disarmed him. The principalities and powers, he's made a public spectacle of them, right, triumphing over them through the blood of his cross, through his resurrection, so that's, what a wonderful way we can praise God. His counsel stands. His counsel stands. Okay, the fourth reason to worship Yahweh, for his perfect knowledge of man. Verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Isn't that crazy? Yahweh, God, sees every single one of us. Every single person on the face of the earth. 
He sees all the sons of men are literally sons of Adam. He sees all the sons of Adam, righteous and unrighteous alike. He sees us all, every single one of us. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. And then look at verse 15. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. As he made our hearts, our innermost being, he made them, he fashioned them. And that word fashion is the same word that's used for he made man, right? In chapter 2, I have it written in here somewhere. Let's see. Yeah, in chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis, when he made man, it's the same word, yoster. He made it. He fashioned our hearts, our innermost being, our powers, our faculties, our passions, everything about, about us. It's, our, it's speaking of our innermost person. He has fashioned it. So if he's the one who's fashioned our hearts, isn't he also the one that knows what's in our hearts? So what's the psalmist saying? He looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. Right? He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their heart. He knows what is in man. And wasn't that true of Jesus? It says those exact words. In John 2, 23 through 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew what was in their innermost hearts. And I think it's interesting that in chapter 2, what comes after chapter 2 of John? Chapter 3, what's in chapter 3, the meeting with Nicodemus, where he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Right? The Holy Spirit must indwell you. Must indwell you. And so Jesus knew it was in man. He knew the wickedness of their hearts. He knew why those people believed on his name. Was it like Judas? To just get what they could get from him? To have comfort and everything like that? To have national prosperity, which is what they were looking for? They weren't looking to meet Jesus, to know him, to walk with him, to die to themselves because they weren't born again yet. And so God knows what's in the heart of man, and he knows it must be changed. Okay, now we come to the fifth reason to worship Yahweh. Yahweh is, the so- is sovereign during war, verses 16 through 17. It says, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. So look at that. No king, no nation is saved by its strength. A mighty man's not saved by his strength. You know, sometimes I'm in the weight room and I'm thinking, well, this is partly in case anybody tries to ever hurt my family or assault me or anything like that. I'll just slap them around. You know? <laughs> but really, I mean, where does my protection come from? Not from this. I probably get beat up really bad. You know? So it doesn't come from me. It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. He's my safety. He's my defense. I can't trust in myself. That's idolatry. That's idolatry.
It says, a horse, a horse is a vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. The horse was like the tank of that day. I mean, pulled chariots, did all these things. If you're on a horse and you're in a battle, you got a spear, you're just going to go through people like butter. Right? It's like a tank. Do we trust in our armies, in our military might, in our nation? Do you guys realize God takes his hand off of America even a little bit? We could be destroyed by the weakest of nations. We all think North Korea is a joke, but they could destroy us if the Lord allowed it. So we pray and we pray and we pray that it doesn't happen. You know, but our trust, our hope is in him. And we take confidence and we, we rejoice that he is sovereign. That he is sovereign. The sixth reason to worship Yahweh. He preserves those who are his by covenant. Verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. And mercy is what Hebrew word? Anybody? I said, good job. You get an A, you get a B. Okay. <laughs> For copying off his paper. No. <laughs> has said his, his covenant loyal love. Right? So we worship Yahweh because he preserves those who are his by covenant. So be, again, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, who don't fear man, right? Who don't fear their bosses or not measuring up in culture. But fear God and want to walk with him and do what's right in his eyes. Right? On those who hope in his mercy, his chesed, who hope in his covenant love, we, our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? And what he's done for us in that. And I also just think, isn't it wonderful that his eyes on you? Not his eye like, I'm watching you. Put his eye like, like on my kids. We're at the park yesterday, and, you know, Tori's pretty active, and she's climbing up stuff and just watching her, making sure she doesn't fall, making sure an older kid doesn't knock her off. Why am I watching her? Because I love her. I love her. I care for her. I want to protect her. Isn't that awesome that God looks at us that way? because of his love, because of his covenant that he's made with us. And now we come to verses 20 through 22, and it's kind of the conclusion. It's kind of the response of the people to all this. So verse 20, it says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy... Again, Hased, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. So it's like the people are proclaiming in the presence of God, and, and after all these reasons to worship, our soul waits for you. And this is um, how we demonstrate our faith. This is how we demonstrate our faith. We wait for the Lord. Right? We wait for his help, for his deliverance, for the consummation of his salvation that he's given us, for him to come back put an end to all this mess, right? We look forward to that. We wait for that. We hope in that. We rejoice, right? Verse 21, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. We rejoice 
That's, again, what we adorn ourselves with. Praise, rejoicing in the Lord. Knowing that he keeps his integrity, the integrity of his word. And then three, they pray for mercy, for his chesed, for his covenant, loving kindness. And again, we, with that, we look forward to that day when we're with him. Whether we die and we go to be with him, or he comes back and gets us, which I think would be far better. Just avoid the whole death thing altogether, you know? You know, when he comes back, he gets us, he raptures us up to himself to be with the Lord forever. How awesome. So let's respond as we worship, all right? Let's think about these things. Go out throughout this week. Go through these things. You need something, a reason to worship God. You ever need a reason to worship God? Just read the psalm and remember those things, that these are the reasons we worship him. And, and this is not not an exhaustive list either. There are so many other reasons we can worship him. All right? But I think David gives us a good little pattern here. So um, let's pray. So, Father, we thank you so much, and we do worship you. We praise you. You're the maker of heavens and the earth. You created it all by the word of your power. Lord, you spoke and it was done. You commanded and it stood fast. Lord, your counsel stands forever. Lord, no one can thwart your ways. No one can stop you. No one can cause you to move from the right or to the left in your commands and your decrees and what you've said is right and good. Lord, you know us all. You look from heaven. You see all the sons of men. You see every single one of us. You know our trials. You know our hearts. And just you, we are yours by covenant, by the covenant, by the new covenant that you've made by the blood of your son. We praise you for that. We love you for that. We thank you for that. And Lord, we trust in you. Lord, it's so easy for us to trust in the things of this world, in our own strength, or in the strength of our nation. But Lord, our trust should come and be totally on you. You're our rock. You are the fountain of living waters. Lord, and how dare we hewn for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Lord, forgive us. Let our trust be in you. And we thank you that your eye is on us, Lord, and all of your love and all your tenderness and all your mercy. We thank you. We wait for you. We hope in you. We trust in you. Lord, let us worship you. Fill us with your spirit. We can't do anything on our own. We need your help, and you're our help. In your name, amen.